What's up, folks? It's once again time to remind you that Fangoria Magazine was a pioneer in the form of genre reporting, and today is better than ever before. The page is filled to the brim with fantastic interviews, set visits, and editorials from all over the horror genre from the best writers out there. These stunning issues tend to sell out, so make sure you never miss one by ordering yourself an annual subscription. To do so, head over to Fangoria.com and make sure to enter in the promo code KINGCAST at checkout for 25% off your annual subscription. And with all of that said, on with the show. Hi, my name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the King Cast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest today needs no introduction to longtime KingCast listeners, but we're going to go ahead and do one anyway for those who are perhaps just joining the party. You'll know her from her work in Oculus, Hush, Gerald's Game, The Haunting of Hill House, and last year's The Haunting of Bly Manor. And later this month, you'll be seeing her in Netflix and Mike Flanagan's highly anticipated Midnight Mass. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kate Siegel back to the KingCast stage for her fourth appearance on this show. Kate, how are you doing today? I'm so good. I've been sitting waiting for this recording to start for about mm, a year and a half. You are very eager to talk about Secret Window. I could not be more excited, although I have to kind of shame the Twitter community for giving (laughs) the opportunity to hear me critique no smoking. Dude, the next time you come on, we're just doing no smoking. I'm just doing it. Just period. First of all, that short story is amazing. Right, right. And I haven't seen the movie because I want to save it for when I get to record the episode about it. Mm-hmm. But I'm yeah. guessing that it's not great. Um, I don't it know. It's wild. It's, yeah. I th- yeah, it sounds like it's got like a Bollywood number in it or oh, something. I love that. I hope it's you know, an electrified so floor. And it's like... I was... I um. That was the one I was rooting for. I think we were both like kind of low-key rooting for... That, yeah. for that one but not wanting to influence the results of that uh listener poll that we did um i'm really surprised I, I mean i'm glad they picked one we hadn't done before yeah uh the only one on there that we had done before was needful things which you know that one probably needs a second at bat but at least they picked one that we hadn't already done before what was it we had something in place of we had something in Needful Things Place originally, and then Eric talked me out of it. Was it Cell, Eric? Uh, yes, it was Cell, and we just did Cell for a, a, a different podcast guest appearance that we did, and and I, I just wasn't ready to go back into the world of Cell. Cell, yeah, I, I told, I told Kate about that. She was like, she was like, uh, you know, oh, fucking Cell would have been really fun. But I, well, I also well, see Eric's side because yeah. I don't want to think about Cell anymore. The sections of of Stephen King's writing that's clearly like. He might have been just a little high on painkillers still. <laughs> <laughs> Dream catcher, um, I'm looking in your direction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, sell the book sell like uh, I'm not crazy about the ending, yeah. uh, but I, I do like it up to I, I like most of that book. Hmm. The movie, though, is just 
a, a fucking beating to sit through. Like, have you have you seen the movie? No, I won't. I won't. Oh my lord! Yeah, we um, we saved you. Like, it, as as much fun as you're gonna have talking secret window. Oh uh, <laughs> oh. uh, trust trust us. It, it would have been a very uh, much worse experience if we I've, forced you to sit down and watch Cell. I've tried to watch it like three or four times and could never get more than half an hour into it. And this time, because you know we were doing it for somebody else's show mm-hmm. and. You know, basically it was for work. I was like, all right, I've got to power through this thing. And it was just uh, it, it, not a not a great thing to have done to myself. Right. And I've seen the uh, I saw Mercy as well. And that's not really that it, it's kind of a dull movie. Yeah. That was the other oh, one on the it? poll for, for people, people listening who might be confused and don't follow us on Twitter. Uh, the the origins of this episode is that we uh, talked to Kate and we all agreed to let the listeners pick whichever movie slash book would be her uh her the topic of her next appearance and uh the the listeners chose what you're about to listen to the secret window but these were the other options that were on the table have you seen mercy kate no i have not neither have i and you know i was kind of thinking like maybe it, maybe it's good you know we don't know Every you know once in a while, um you know the filmmaker connects with Stephen King and solves the problem of the internal monologue and yay Hmm. Shawshank Redemption Mm -hmm. happens but I don't know my my hopes are not high I feel like the odds of that you know if it's not a Mike Flanagan adaptation what's happening (laughs) you guys know Mike Flanagan he's a filmmaker nice guy uh I've heard it rings a bell yeah it's on his way up something of a bell little young up-and-comer whippersnapper (laughs) Little whiffers is a little green, but you know. I, I already pissed off Kurt Russell once on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> he can't be trusted around famous people. He really can't. Ted Danson. Oh boy, I love it. Ted Danson. Wow. Oh my lord. Okay, so yeah, that's that's how this episode came together, and we're going to be talking Secret Window in just a second. But before we get there, and since you know we don't need to do your Stephen King origin story at this point. Um, let's talk a little bit about Midnight Mass. This thing's coming out in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Very exciting. You were telling us before the show that uh, Mike is uncommonly proud of this one. I would uh, say that everybody involved in this production is uncommonly proud of this production. <laughs> it is something mm-hmm. that we, as a team, everybody from like, People on the production side to the cast to the crew felt a certain amount of magic while we were making it because it was at the beginning of the first round of COVID and we all sort of felt the world was ending and we only had each other and something about that magic really translates and Mike will wake me up in the middle of the night to say, I think this is the greatest thing I've ever done and I don't know if I'll ever top it. And I'll be like, cool, bro. I was asleep, but also, of course. <laughs> hey, hey, Kate. <laughs> wake up, wake up, Kate. Kate, Kate. You know, Kate. you know that thing we did? I think it's really good. Like, yeah. Uh. And then You're like, yeah, you won't top it. Go back to bed. But if I kill you, it will be the last good thing you do. <laughs> but it's a wash from here on out. I've seen the future. <laughs> yes, right. You're done. You're really done. So- but, so my my question though, re- just real quick, is is do you think the quality of the show was uh, impacted by the level of the poutine you were having while you were making it? <laughs> First of all, this my thing is all inside jokes. Aaron, um, 
oh, I can't say this. I can't say that. I can't say that. I can say, yes, yes, it was. In fact, I got to eat all the poutine I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the thing I've realized is like as a younger actress in my 20s, I was like a little grouchy and a little sassy. And I think it turns out I was just hungry all the time. <laughs> because the second I started getting the right amount of calories in my diet, I was just a nicer person. <laughs> Once we got me on the uh, poutine IV drip, uh, everything was great. You guys. Get, get that gravy and those cheese curds. And yeah. To your, to your comment about... Um, you can't say this. You can't say that. I've noticed that y'all are being uncommonly uh, cagey about what this thing is even about. Uh, is there a reason for that? Yes. I mean, I assume I there is, about. but um, no. I think what happens is in this day and age of like twenty-four hour news cycle and Twitter and Instagram, there are very few surprises left in sure. entertainment. And we were able to lock this thing down so completely. And it is such a fun ride that this mm -hmm. is one of those shows you don't want spoilers getting out there. You don't want too much information because whenever you think as the viewer, you know where this story is going, you're wrong. Right. And that's part of the fun of it is the puzzle, is the reveals, is the just the playground Mike has put together for the viewer. And we all mm -hmm. really want to make sure that 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 people who love that kind of viewing get it. I like that this thing is only 7 episodes long. Yeah. A lot of series are like 12, 15 episodes long or some crazy shit and you're like this really didn't need that many episodes. A tight right. 7 though. That that's like the number I've been saying for years like why was this 10 when this could have been 7 yeah. and so forth. So that's that's an exciting little little bonus for my ADHD adult. Right. And every episode is packed. Like there is not a wasted scene. It is you guys. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just starting press for it. So I haven't found the eloquent way to say like, watch this show. It's so fucking good. You guys, I don't even know how to say it. And so the, eventually I'll find a better way to express that feeling. But right now I just want to be like, it's so good. It's so good. Clear your calendar, September 24th. You're just going to want to burn through as much as you can. Is it like gnarly violent or is it more psychological thriller? Um, I think it fans of Mike kind of know what to expect where it is scary, but it's not gory. You're not going to be nauseous watching it. Hmm. But that, that fear <laughs> people talk about in the scare of episode eight of Hill House. Uh -huh. um, that's the feeling like where you're watching and then all of a sudden it's not a jump scare, but it's just the dread peaks and then valleys and peaks and valleys. And it's just that sense of a slow motion car crash where you start to get to the point where you're going to see it happen. And Oh no, 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 no. Oh, nice. So what is there anything you... in there that matches the intensity of murdering that poor, sweet little baseball boy in Dr. Sleep? Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> I, I want to say, when I watch Dr. Sleep, when I watch the rough cut, I watch the baseball boy scene all the way through. And then every other time I watched that movie, I walked out of the room. I refused to watch that scene mm. more than once. Mm -hmm. And I would say there's nothing as graphic as that, but there are things that will make you think for the rest and like make you scared for days, mm. remembering it. Mm. 
I have. Well, there's a scene where Tremblay comes in and they just shove him down a flight of stairs. Yeah, <laughs> they just slowly put him in a meat grinder as he screams. <laughs> yeah, that from toes toes up a little yeah. bit more. Like it's just I, I don't know how. Mm. I'm too, I, I think I, my talking points memo. Hold on. Do, 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 do. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Just, I think it, I, just do it. I think I mentioned this to Mike at some point, but my wife refused to see Dr. Sleep because she knew I didn't like the book and took that as a bad sign. Yeah. And then um, she like the shining is basically her favorite movie. And so she's very precious about it. Yeah. And, and was just the whole idea of it was like, she couldn't wrap her head around it. And finally, just like in the last couple of months, I, I rewatched it again. Um, it's become one of those movies that I'll put on in the background. And it's just great to have on, especially the, the director's cut. And I was like, come on, just just give it a shot, you know. And we finally watched it. And then when we got to the baseball boys scene, she was like, OK, but we have to fast forward through the scene. I know what the scene is. You know, I've heard about it. And now I'm wondering if like that's what wasn't actually keeping her away. The whole time, it might, and I get it. Know, you know, she's a teacher. Yeah, you know, she's you know, and it's so. a testament to Jacob's talent too, because mm-hmm. he didn't shy away from it. He truly Fuck experienced no. it, and that I think more because if you were to put maybe a less experienced or a less talented actor in his part, the mm-hmm. scene doesn't actually show you anything. Mm-hmm. His face. It, it's all. It's all in his reaction. Yeah, and so yeah, it's really his true. performance. It's, it's so it, beautiful. It wasn't. It, it's gore. right. It, it's the pleading part of it that gets me. It's not the oh. the actual attack. It's you know. It's the scared child that like you. you I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, we could get into this, you know, and, and spend a whole episode just talking about this. But I will say before we leave this topic. One of my all-time favorite photos of anything that's ever been taken is that behind-the-scenes picture of of bloody uh, oh Jacob God. Tremblay giving the thumbs up and Rebecca Ferguson just standing like uh, he, almost holding him with a thousand-yard stare after having oh, just yeah. shot that scene. It's so true. And I just before I know we want to move on, but I do want to say something to people who love The Shining and have mm. sh- have stayed away from Doctor Sleep because they think their movie will be desecrated. That. That production team pulled blueprints from the original movie. Like they found Mm -hmm. the actual wallpaper. They found the actual carpet. They recreated those sets to like down to the minutia. And so it is a movie for Shining fans. If you love that. I mean, if you look at the scene on the stairs with Jack and Wendy, they recreated that shot by shot. It is something that I think that that a true Shining fan would love, especially the director's cut. So please, you know, I think in 10 years, this will be an iconic King adaptation like Shawshank, which was a bomb when it came out and then became iconic. Yeah. Yeah. I, my wife liked it. I think, I, well, she did that thing where like if there's a movie she's like resisting watching and then I finally talk her into it and she likes it, she'll just not like say much. You know, because she doesn't want to, like, you know, give me the like the satisfaction of of having of having been right about it. You know, um, but uh, she was glued to it. Again, I know we want to move on, but you know, uh, <laughs> the way he married the book and the movie is what's key to that whole thing working. Yeah, in, I mean, in it my feels opinion. like he's it's brilliantly of handled. King and Kubrick. Anyway, so go watch Doctor Sleep, everyone. <laughs> Just uh, skip Secret Window. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, secret window. 
Okay, I so have a, I have a real quick. I have a feeling that people. This always tends to happen with these movies where we see them and have a whole lot of negative things to say about it. All the listeners always go. It makes me want to watch the movie. This happened with when we did the Mangler. And we're mm-hmm. and, and we're just like I swear to God the movie is way more fun to talk about than actually watch, so I, I want to put that caveat up front. Yeah, I well we'll 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 get to it I guess, but mm. let's let's lay out the 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 specs on this one. Uh, Secret Window obviously is based on Secret Window Secret Garden from uh, Four Past Midnight, which is a mm-hmm. collection of four novellas. Came out in nineteen ninety. Uh, the movie wasn't made until 2004. Uh, David, how do you say his name, Eric? Is it Kep. David Coep? Kep? Kep. Okay. I've been pronouncing it in my head as Coep all this time, like a jackass. Yeah, phonetically. You've just been going phonetically. Yeah. You're hooked on phonics. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm on my way up. I'm going to be able to read by the end of the week. I'm so proud of you. Um, and uh, it stars Johnny Depp, John Turturro, Maria Bello, Timothy Hutton, and Charles S. Dutton. Did pretty well at the box office. I was surprised looking this up this morning that um, budget was 40. It did 93. Mm-hmm. Pretty good return on the investment there. And it's, um, I guess the, the only thing I want to point out is that when this movie came out, it was sort of during the heyday of Johnny Depp. You know, yeah. this is like in the middle of all the Pirates of the Caribbean shit. He was like being embraced by the masses in a way that he wasn't. Uh, previously he was sort of an indie darling, uh, mm-hmm. for the most part, not always, but for the most part before this, and it plays very differently here in the year of our Lord, 2021. <laughs> right. Uh, Kate, for anyone who is unfamiliar with this story, would you be willing to lay out the, uh, basic plot of this one? Yeah. Um, let's see. Secret window is the story of a writer who is going through a divorce. And one day a man shows up on his doorstep and says, you stole my story. And then it is a a deep dive into that conflict with sprinkled in with how frustrated he is with his wife who had an affair and he caught them. This man who has shown up on his doorstep claims that the story he wrote, Secret Window, Secret Garden, was stolen by Johnny Depp's character. And they have a back and forth. And at every turn, this John Shooter is the name of the man who showed up, kind of gets in the way of Mort, who is the author. And it seems like he's out to get him. And the people who can uh, corroborate Mort's story and it being published earlier seem to die or disappear. And the big twist at the end is that spoilers spoilers is that John <laughs> Shooter and Mort Rainey are the same person and our author mm-hmm. has had a psychotic break because of the trauma of finding his wife in bed with somebody else and has brought up an old feeling of when he did steal a story and created a second personality who is murdering people whose end goal is to kill his wife shooter mm-hmm. shoot her <laughs> um, which is not so. Ha- which is in the di- which is an addition for the movie, by the way. Yes, the, yes, that's in true. the movie that that starts with it's like mm, it's like a bad Chekhov's gun because the first thing <laughs> you see in the movie is a window that isn't secret at all. It's just mm. like <laughs> on the side of the house. They like to <laughs> slow pan up the house to a very obvious window. 
Obvious window would have been a funny title. Obvious <laughs> would be the whole story of this movie because the second John Toro shows up, you go, "That's not a real person." The second Johnny Depp shows up on screen, you're like, "Oh, that guy's crazy." Like at the end, the shoot her, which is not what the name shooter breaks down to. Shooter came <laughs> from the name of his guy's affair thing, house, town he grew up in. Anyway the actual harmony of it not being a secret window and being an obvious twist at the end where it says Mm -hmm. is probably the only beautiful harmony of this movie, which I hated with the fire (laughs) of a thousand suns. I'm sorry. I'll probably never work for any of these people. Well, well, uh, before we get too deep into the movie, how did you feel about the novella? How do you feel about four past midnight? And then how do you feel about Mm. this? Um, I like four past midnight. I love the story. I had, this is, um, you know me. I'm like a feminist constant reader. I, I have mm-hmm. some real misogyny issues with this in terms of how his wife behaves and the way she's described and the way like, you know, she calls him up. She's like, I just I know you hate my feelings, but I just had a feeling that you weren't OK. And I was like, I just I hate how she becomes a sidebar to this story. I hate mm-hmm. I sort of hate the navel gazing writer aspect of this. I don't think it's particularly interesting. I think, um, you know, I just recently read a novel about a person who stole a story. How I'm looking up what that was. That was fantastic and dealt with the the guilt a person feels. And and I am again constant reader, huge fan. It felt like mm-hmm. something King maybe should have left in a drawer. Like it was an an exploration of his own guilt and his own. He loves to examine where stories come from. He loves to right. talk about that. I think it's done really well in Lissy's story where he talks about the magical place he goes to get ideas that, you know, seems insane to anybody. The writer is mm-hmm. insane. But this one, it just never, it never scared me. It never made me question my opinions. It never did all the things I love about Stephen King's mm-hmm. writing. Am I off base here? What right. do you guys think? I don't think you're wrong mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but my big issue with this story has always been the ending like that. Yeah. In, in, in terms of the twist, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think it's like the dual personality thing has been done to death so many times that even when I originally read this, which is like before fight club or a couple of other more modern yeah. examples of that trope, being like, uh, okay, it just, it's, it's, to me, it's on par with the, uh, it was all a dream ending. Exactly. You know? The and, uh, book I'm talking yeah. about is um, The Plot. Okay. Have you guys read this book? No. No. The plot, Who's the author? Uh, let me know. What, what do you want from me here? I've got Four Past Midnight up here. <laughs> What's going on? It is um, The Plot by Gene Hanf Corlitz. It is well, okay. but who who did who did Gene steal the plot of the plot from? Exactly. Well, it feels well. First of all, <laughs> Stephen King says that it, this was immensely readable. So Stephen King. So let's <laughs> we've got a real snake eating its Th- that's a, situation here. Yeah, this is a book. Exactly. The words <laughs> are in order. No typos yeah. here. Um, but it's it's just I agree with you guys. If the whole thing felt on the nose and. I don't know. Why can't we be doing the library policeman? That book is so fucking scary. Jesus that Christ. Is, that disturb that that's the most disturbing book in or novella in four 
four past midnight. Um, Langoliers is like one of my all time favorite reads. Oh like yeah. That, that was up there as, as a kid. Like I reread that one two or three times, um, which isn't common for me. Cause I was always reading something new. Um, you know, cause I had, I had a, a mission statement to read everything King had, had written at that point. And, uh, but like that in the mist, I read over and over and over again. Uh, but yeah, secret window, secret garden was always one that like, I would, I got bored with while reading. And I think it's because it is so obvious what the twist is. Um, I, I will say that the novella at least has the sense to try to throw in a little bit of a supernatural angle yeah. to where, you know, to, to where, because the, the ending of the novella is a little bit more about, yes, it's a split personality, but he almost wills this yes. new fictional character into a real life existence that exists beyond the death of the uh, the main character, and uh, so it's a little. And even then, though, it's still that's like lesser dark half, you know. Yeah, so thing, it feel, yeah, it feels like yeah. it feels like a, a test run at something, and I and it right. And four past midnight does that though, right? It has the Langoliers and a secret window, secret garden. Then has the library policeman, and then it has Sundog. Like, come on. <laughs> I don't know. It just, yeah, uh, Sundog. I don't. I just straight up don't care for that story exactly it's like that it to balance it like two of those stories could have just been pulled out and it could have been two past midnight (laughs) 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 it could have been noon and midnight you know the library police Uh and langoliers but anyway i I love langoliers so much that it sort of smooths over every other issue i might have with four past midnight yeah you know and that I do like love King at his pulpiest. I love it. Yeah. Oh, it's so it's so just like schlocky. You know, I I, I love that thing. And I also, and what a you know, film. I've said this on the, <laughs> <laughs> the pinch. It's the best one in there. But I think Library Policeman is the second best. It's just so fucking disturbing. It's so story, scary. You know? Library Policeman is yeah. so scary. And then the other two are just. Nah. I mean, so. you know, they can't all. It's a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, but to go can't all be home to the movie which I think couldn't even find the grains of genius in the short story. I think your problem starts mm. at the, with Johnny Depp. It is just the worst casting. And I, I didn't know that it was during his time of Pirates of the Caribbean, because knowing that now his performance, it's like he hadn't quite shaken off that character. Mm. He still yes. has a little bit of that. I was saying earlier to you guys that there's a moment very early on where the housekeeper having found his story and cleaned his house and made him food came up and was like, well, you know, I just wanted to check in and see if you were okay. And this woman is played very sweet, very kind. Like there's nothing annoying about what she's doing. She is taking care of a man who is paying her. This is her boss. And she turns away to go and Johnny Depp puts up finger guns and pretends to shoot her in the back. And it's like, Mm -hmm. immediately I hate this guy. I think he's a dick. (laughs) Because like that woman, that's she's at work, bro. Like she's been paid to clean your house and take care of you, and you're pretending to shoot her. And I know he thought, uh-huh. knowing now, he probably thought that was funny because it was funny in Pirates of the Caribbean that he was mm. kind of unpredictable and wild and drunk and sexy. And but, lay, well, and laying the seeds for the big old twist. Uh, yes. Shoot, he's shooting her. Her. I fucking. Oh, I hate it so much. I hate that <laughs> said. And you're I right. Can... And it's so. You can just see them all going. Oh, it's so smart because if he shoots her, he shoots her. Fuck. 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 Mm-hmm. Fuck. Make it. Good. I just want to interject here and point out that every time we say shooter, what plays in my head 
is Scott Thompson on Kids in the Hall playing Buddy Cole saying shooters <laughs> like that's what I that's what I think of every fucking time I see the word shooter or we say it on this show. You so, know, um, you know what runs in my head is the opening of Jurassic Park where we're <laughs> shooter. Shooter. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll have to dig up that gift. So whenever we're promoting this episode, I can just post that on every, Oh my God. So <laughs> Eric, how do you feel about the movie? Um, I, I remember I saw the movie at AFM, uh, early before it came out. I was there covering it for, um, uh, ain't it cool back then. And I was super excited. Cause I'm like, it's a new Stephen King thing. You know, and at that point, it was real easy to be a fan of Johnny Depp because I was a I loved uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is like one of my all time you know favorite movies at that time, and you know I really love hearing you know Johnny Depp in a Stephen King universe thing, and I remember being kind of bored by the movie and uh, at the time, and I I hadn't rewatched it until leading up to this, and I think that time has softened me just a tad on it where I could get engaged in the movie uh, a little bit more. Maybe it's just because Johnny Depp is such a caricature of, of himself now, like that even just being kind of that fresh wacky is a little nostalgic for me in a weird way. But yeah, I mean that goes out the window in the first half. Like you, so you you're there in the first half and John Turturro shows up and he's being all wacky too. And Nothing is really solid in this. I found I was pulling for it more than it was actually delivering, if that makes any sense. Because, like, I love Stir of Echoes, which is a movie that David Kep did, yeah, um, a few years before this. And, and you know, the it looks pretty sharp. You know, it's it has some character actors I really love. Charles S. Dutton, you mentioned. There's also a guy named uh, Len Carew. Carew, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but he. Uh, uh, he was like the main bad guy in The Lady in White, which is a movie I watched obsessively as a kid. And he mm-hmm. plays the sheriff in this. And like, so every once in a while, it's just, there's a little something that that pulls me into it. Um, it's such like a, I don't know, like a base hit of a movie, right? It's like, you have all this talent there and it's just kind of, it lays limp for me. And when it goes really crazy, it's not... Here, I will say the very end when they go totally off script, off book, I almost admired how ridiculous it was, especially when Johnny Depp shows up and he's wearing fucking braces and his his hair's combed oh for one and he's yeah. happy <laughs> yeah. and, he, and he's eating the corn that was <laughs> fertilized by the, the body yeah, of his, his uh, wife and his lover. Corn when you have braces. That's like the number one thing besides chewing gum that you can't do. Like anyone yeah. who's ever had braces, they know you can't eat apples, corn, or gum. So no apples. Fuck. Who made that braces choice? Yeah. I don't know. I'm with you though. On paper, this movie is stacked with great names yeah. and talent. And that's maybe, I like yeah. that you are a positive person and that makes you root for it because that makes me more angry. Because I was like, <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 they, the, that it didn't deliver. Yeah, he's incredible. I'm a huge Johnny Depp fan. I am like, you know, I'm there for Maria Bell. Like all of them are great. Tim Hutton, right. what a guy. I just, <laughs> I, I get angry when they had all of this and, and maybe they drank their own Kool-Aid and Johnny Depp's like, what about braces? What about a blowout? What about me sexually harassing a young woman who works at the post office at the grocery oh. store? And, and everyone's like, oh, <laughs> that's a good note to end the movie yeah. on. 
And these ways they went away from the book, like at the very beginning of their confrontation, Shooter says to Moore, like, if we fight, it'll end in one of us dying. And then like mm, 10 scenes later, they fight and it doesn't end in anything. (laughs) Don't do that. You don't need that. You guys have everything you need right in front of you. And I should be more compassionate like you are with your your forgiveness. But instead, I'm I'm resentful because I wanted this to be better than it was. Right. I do agree with Eric that it's sort of a a base hit of a movie. I think part of that is that this movie would largely appeal to, you know, very casual film goers. Right. You know, people, people who aren't familiar with the idea as readily as like any of us might be uh, Mm -hmm. for this, you know, the trope of the hero is also the villain. It's a split personality thing. Well, that's why the box office numbers were so high. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like um, for people that wouldn't see that coming, you know, and might actually be surprised by it. um, You know, I'm I'm sure this movie is is a solid home run, you know, but it's got that same problem. The story had that said, I like more about this movie than I do not. Whoa. hot! And (laughs) like like I'm right up the middle on it, basically, Mm -hmm. but it's maybe like five percent over. And a lot of that, like a full like 25% of that has to do with John Saturo, who I fucking love as this character. As you pointed out, Kate, as soon as he shows up on the porch, it's like he's been ported in from another movie. He, like he's he's yeah. acting, he's he's delivering a different reality via his performance than anyone else in the movie, except maybe Depp, who's his own kind of cartoon. I just love his goofy accent. I love his ridiculous outfit. There's just the sight of him dressed up like borderline like the fucking preacher from poltergeist 2 you know staring down johnny depp in a bathrobe on a porch is just a fucking good visual i think and Totoro's performance carries a lot of the movie for me that said uh i hadn't seen it in many years until i rewatched for this episode and he's not in it as much as i remember which is kind Mm -hmm. of a bummer and the johnny deppness of it all sort of you know in between all the drama he's constantly embroiled in and in between just being tired of his shtick at this point and and all the all the other bullshit surrounding Johnny Depp, it it makes it, I don't know, just kind of a kind of grating to watch. How do you feel about Totoro in this? As we talk about it, I tried to like distill what caused me such frustration in watching it. And even with his performance, like I'm glad that we have different points of view on this because I just I feel like everybody was so into the smell of their own farts in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And they're from the way, like even doing the research to come on to this episode today and looking at some of the trivia and you've got things like Johnny Depp when he's yelling at the end, rah, 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 rah. It's because his son did that when he was pre-verbal and he feels like Mort would go back to a pre-verbal place and Totoro is trying to create a whole different universe. And I was like, there is a version of this movie that is grounded and small Hmm. and works. Like I don't need, I don't, and I get that it probably had to do with studio notes and they, and they want to capitalize on depth success and they want to pull in his audience and his audience, the audience of Pirates of the Caribbean needs their hands held a little bit through a thriller. This is a PG 13 thriller. So they have to kind of water it down. It can't be too, but I ache for the version of this where Totoro gives us a performance like his in the night of 
miniseries. Yeah. 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 Human that, that we believe, let's believe for a second that Mort Rainey is the incredible writer that we are told he is. I do not believe Johnny Depp in this movie is an incredible writer, but let's say he is. Wouldn't the character he creates in his brain be a fully fleshed out and real person? Wouldn't his Hmm. split personality be well-written? They kind of phoned it in. It was a base hit by people who are Babe Ruth level talents. And that to me feels like a money grab. And it's part of the industry that I don't love. Yeah, it's less that I thought it's bad because they tried and they couldn't do it. I thought it was bad because they didn't give it their all because they thought they had just an easy win here, which I guess they did. Just coasting through the coasting to the finish line. Yeah, all of them. All great actors, great director, great writer. All of them are just coasting to me. They're not making the second choice. They're not doing the edits of their choices. It does feel very surface level. And and I, I will say that much. And, and that's, you know, obviously not a compliment. Uh, but there seems to be like so much at play here. Like I, I like the idea at the beginning where it's it's a guy who it, it kind of deals with procrastination. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's a guy who will do anything except for work because he's scared of, of you know, not being good at what he's doing. Right. Right. And like, that's a whole angle that is just dropped, you know, right in the middle of it. There's like a little hint where he meets the sheriff and the sheriff seems to be this weird, you know, he's not really all that concerned about his dog ending up with a screwdriver in his throat, you know? And and yet he's also the first one, he, he disappears and then shows up at the end and go, I know what you did. Like, I'm certain I'm all of a sudden, you know, really keen and know, you know, can figure shit out. It feels like that there's a lot of little threads. Another thing that jumps out to me is the, um, you know, how they have him like drive that car off the cliff and he gets his like watch stuck in the, mm-hmm. in, you know, on the gear shift or whatever. And then like that becomes part of the evidence. They don't do anything with that of like of of this trying to play up the the misdirect of this guy actually being the killer and going like all just through these circumstances of events. He is being implicated in all these crimes that he's trying to now cover up because he knows it looks bad for him. You know, there is a really fun way to approach the story where you have a guy, you know, who you think is the victim the entire time instead of, you know, up front that he's absolutely the one doing this. That could have been kind of an all timer if they had done it right. Yeah. You know, uh, like you, Kate, I was I was looking up a trivia on this one and I came across a story I had not heard before involving a you know, like a, a, a an unhinged Stephen King fan. I had heard a story about, you know, I had heard about trespassers on this property. And I've heard that story about like a guy showing up at his house just at his front door and Stephen King, like diffusing the situation by going out on his porch and just talking to the guy for a while until mm-hmm. he went away. Mm-hmm. But have you all heard this story about the bomb? No. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kate, what happened was this guy showed up to King's house while he wasn't there. He, he walks in the, uh, well, here, I'll just read it to you. This is from uh, Haunted Heart, The Life and Times of Stephen King by Lisa Rogak. Uh, a man named Eric King broke into the King's home on April 20th, 1991 at six in the morning. Tabby was the only one home at the time. And after hearing the sound of glass breaking, she encountered Keen in the kitchen. He waved a box wrapped in brown paper at her and told her he had a bomb and was going to blow up the house because he claimed that King stole the plot for misery from Keen's aunt. Oh, my God. Tabby ran out of the house in her nightgown and headed for a neighbor's to call the police. With a bomb-sniffing dog in tow, the police searched the house and found Keen holed away in the attic. When they opened the box he had threatened Tabby with, they found about two dozen pencils with paper clips wound around them. 
Keen was arrested and prosecuted and served just over 18 months in jail before he was extradited to Texas for a parole violation. Can you fucking imagine this shit happening? That's the story I want to read. <laughs> right? Like that's yeah. uh, no, I, a, I cannot imagine that shit happening. That poor woman, that poor house that, I mean, they're, they have given up their whole life for the sake of his genius. But like, can you imagine what if Amy, the wife in secret window was written as competently as Tabby behaves? And she's not just like, well, you know, and oh, God, I miss my cat. And are you okay? I'm really <laughs> thinking about you. You know, and at one point, Amy says like, oh, we're not together. And then stops the sentence. And you see, they cut to Johnny Depp and he's got this big smile. And she goes, I mean, at the moment. And it's like, fuck you. Fuck you, screenwriter. <laughs> what woman doesn't know not to just pause after the word together? What if she was competent? Sorry. Right. You know, oh, yeah, poor you, Maria Bello is yeah. just given the shit end of the stick in the movie a hundred percent. Like, and she is forced to do the, the title uh, thing. As we talked about the obvious window, she discovers behind a desk yes, or something that she moves out of the way and it looks down onto a garden. And that's their way of being like, aha, secret window, secret garden, even though, in the novella, that was the name of a story. It had nothing to do with a, a window or a garden. Exactly. And it's like obvious <laughs> yeah. window, obvious ending. Kate, how would you feel about like, you know, put yourself in Tabby's position here. Mm -hmm. Let's say someone breaks in your house while Mike is out of town. Yeah. And says that he stole the plot for, I don't fucking know, Oculus or mm -hmm. Hush or whatever. You've got intruders coming onto your property. You've got people showing up on the porch and uh, Mike's got to go out there and talk to them. You know, uh, at a certain point, would you not, do you think you would resent this? Or do you think that, you know, you just shrug and be like, that's the cost of living. I think what happens is what would happen for me is in that situation, I would have both of those responses. I think if everything uh -huh. was okay, like let's say it does work out the way it seems to generally work out for King and Tabby that she ran out and it wasn't a bomb or he did defuse the situation. So let's assume it ends well. My terror and my panic of what happened would probably lead me to a lot of ranting and raving at Mike. Like, I didn't ask for this. We didn't want this. I'm worried about our children. I'm worried about our safety. And then I think after time, as you process that traumatic moment, you get to the point of being like, well, this is the cost of telling stories that affect people, which I think is part of what happens to create change in the world. I think movies mm -hmm. and good books and good stories help people experience things that are outside of their lives. And I want to change the world for good. And I believe Mike and me to some extent, that is what we do with these stories. We let people experience fear so that they make better choices in their lives. But I think I definitely would always start with how can this be happening? We can't do this anymore. You have to go back to being a high school history teacher, which was your original dream. But I would imagine that now in order to keep going, you have to, in order to keep going as Stephen King and Tabby do, Tabitha, do I don't know her. I shouldn't call her by her nickname. Um, <laughs> I know her very well in my head. That's probably very different from who she is. That they must go through that emotional cycle over and over again because the cost is huge. You know, you may have just answered this question, but I'll go ahead and, and ask it anyway. Like, you know, I'm reminded of when we talked to Elijah Wood about misery, and he was telling us these stories about what might politely be called mega fans who would like say just show up in his backyard overnight and be loitering around out there when he woke up to make coffee in the morning and he'd look out the window and see them 
or a woman who continually came to his porch and was knocking on his door and was clearly in love with him to some degree and felt that he was in love with her secretly. Yeah. Uh, or these stories about Stephen King. Do you think that's purely a matter of these are people who have told stories in Elijah's case, maybe the Lord of the Rings series uh, through his work on that and King, you know, with his novels, that it is just the power of the story that is compelling these people toward them? Or do you think that you can reach a certain level of fame that is so high that it's inevitable that you're going to have to deal with some some bullshit like this? I think, again, both of those things are true. Yeah. I think in order to yeah. reach a certain level of fame, you have to be very good at your job. Like you have to, you know, there's good actors can feel the authentic emotion. Great actors make the audience feel the authentic emotion. So good writers mm-hmm. create a compelling story. Great writers make the emotion happen in the reader. And so right. people who are famous get to the point where they are able to manipulate the emotions of the people who is, are watching, which is that's Merlin level magic shit to create yeah. true <laughs> authentic feelings in another person. And what happens is people who maybe have been living in a delusionary state or who have who live through a, a world that they that doesn't reconcile with what they want their world to be. Sometimes that is broken through that that delusion is broken by story maybe by the Lord of the Rings story, maybe by misery. And they start to identify something as being where they think reality is. And then they get Mm. all confused about love because mental health is a huge problem in this country and nobody is taught how to process extreme emotions. And so people who are suffering from mental health don't have the help they need. And so they latch on to these storytellers who have created authentic emotion in them Mm. and they need to go there. They need to be there like the way people wanted to be near shamans or cult leaders. It is the mm. creation of emotion in another person creates a bond. And if, if they aren't processing emotions, well, it can get stuck. And so I think there's two things that happen here, right? If you're famous, you're more likely to be very good at your job. It's not always that way, but you're more likely to be good. at. It. <laughs> and so it's an, yes, that is true. So it's a, a combination of being great at your job. Like Elijah is, he's compelling and vulnerable and his eyes and his face, they're just open. And so I can see why a person would believe if they were a little bit off that he is in love with them specifically. I mean, he's in love with me. I, I want to be that. clear on that. Well, I mean, right, now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. right. I watch his but that's just, that's just for me. Yeah. You, you, you know, I watched Grand Piano the other night and I'm like, I see what you're putting down here, buddy. I feel it. I feel you coming through the screen. It's funny because I feel that way from, about Casey from Fuckboy Island. was <laughs> communicating to me through his fucking head interviews that he's really looking for me. I've been, we're way on a tangent now, but I've been setting that one aside. I, uh, I, I love Elon Gale, who I know through Twitter and you guys are friends with him, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, love that dude. And, and Molly, um, and I knew he was involved, so I wanted to I wanted to see that. But my wife just will not watch reality television, uh, and I'll I'll dip into that pool from time to time. So I'm kind of saving that for like a rainy day uh, when I've just got the house to myself. And I'm just going to binge the whole goddamn compulsively watchable. It is for people who like to talk shit while they watch Bachelor in Paradise, because Alon knows his audience <laughs> so completely, and he just gives you these moments after moments after moments where you can be like these fucking people. 
and the show is self-aware. It knows what it's doing. And then he somehow manages to twist it again. Like Alan is a genius of this kind of world. And he's moving into writing and longer form uh, storytelling, which I think is very smart because his brain is off the chain. But this Fuckboy Island is just so fun. And it's reality TV for smart people. And I like it. I want to check it out. Have you ever dealt with accusations from a, a highly passionate fan? Or, you know, overbearing behavior. I notice, and I ask because, you know, not only is it on topic, but also because, you know, I've noticed that you have like a very, very, very passionate fan base on social media. Yeah. You know, we don't, we, we don't post a single thing mentioning you on our Twitter feed without hearing from about half dozen people. Mm -hmm. Has that ever crossed a line for you? Your fan base? No, I mean, I... Either I'm not quite talented enough or not quite famous enough because (laughs) (laughs) I need bigger eyes. You need those Elijah eyes. I need them. Elijah eyes. Um, Yes, that's going to be the name of my band. Elijah's eyes. Um, (laughs) No, I find them, my fan base to be supportive and kind and thoughtful at this time. I think it has a bit to do with my work tends to speak to women ages 16 to 35 who are in the LGBTQIA plus space. And Mm -hmm. they tend to be thoughtful and supportive and kind. And I I don't, I have room in my imagination for maybe someday it goes too far. But right now, like the other day, I'm not great at like technology stuff. And my Twitter banner was just like a section of the Midnight Mass poster, but everyone's heads were cut off. And I was like, I guess that's the best I can do. And mm-hmm. one of my fans was like, hey, I just created this for you so you can do a banner that has the whole poster. So go ahead and use that. And I was like, that's fucking amazing. That's mm-hmm. somebody who supported me in my work in a way that I needed, but I didn't know how to ask for. And it was thoughtful and it was helpful. And this is someone I communicate with quite a bit, a couple of these fan accounts, because they've shown themselves to be both you know, sane and kind-hearted and with good intentions. I just haven't encountered, I'm very much a um, a block and ignore for anybody that crosses even mm. the furthest out there boundary for me. Like it's nope, right. nope, nope, right. nope. And so people I yeah. choose to communicate with tend to be good people. Yeah, your your fans are like the Mormons of of fans. Uh, They they are just like just just like totally. What what I love about it is like they not only because we got a a a whole bunch of people with your face on their Twitter avatars that'll come in and and uh, and but not just for your episodes. Like the second you appeared on the show, it's like they're like you know. Kate did this and I really like this episode. So I now like these people. Now everybody should watch this. And nice. And some of those are the biggest like engagers of, of the King cast stuff. Yeah. Uh, even though, you know, we've done 70 what plus episodes in the main feed and you've been, been on four, but they've uh, you know, they're, they're like as supportive of each new episode as if you were on it, you know, well, I think it they're is, great it is ridiculous. And I love that about them. Like they give me book recommendations. I give them book recommendations. Mm. There's a, a certain amount of at a certain level, I kind of feel like I would hang out and have a cup of coffee with some of them and be like, what are you reading? What are you watching? And I think it that does have something to do with I'm not that famous, like within a certain world, in a certain world, like within the genre of horror and people who like certain type of horror, you would recognize my name. But I don't think 
that I'm drawing in levels of viewership that would make me a target for people who are suffering from mental health issues that are untreatable. Right. Sure. Right. I think it's nobody cool showing have up a, with a pencil, a pencil box <laughs> and saying it's a bomb. Paper yeah. clips. Not yet. Yeah. I think, I think it's cool to have a, a, a fan base like that. Dude, it's the coolest. And I noticed are the you same, kidding me? <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, well, I, I think it's, I, you know, it's not just cool to have a fan base. It's cool to have a fan base that aren't fucking dicks. Yes. You know, and, <laughs> right. and, and, and experience has taught me that uh, particularly when it pertains to social media, that if you're dealing with someone who has, a specific fan base who might have avatars using your face or your name in their handle. Those people tend to be hyper aware of whatever you're saying or doing and are very protective of the thing that they're a fan of. And so they can turn around real quick on a dime and go from being, you know, super fans to, you know, um, like Attack angry dogs. star Wars fans or, or something like that, you know, and well, that's, you're that really is, trying to avoid saying Snyder. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am. I don't. I don't <laughs> want to deal with the fucking headache of that. <laughs> right. But yeah. um, I had a ton of fear early on because Theo Crane, Theodore Crane, is very different mm-hmm. from Kate Siegel. So when people would come to conventions that and like Hill House was there, someone would want to do a like a Twitter whatever, and they were a fan of. Hill House, I was very scared because Theo is in so much pain. That woman is Mm. in her trauma until the end of that show. And I have had 10 years of therapy and I kind of like, I'm a little bit more of someone who's shitting glitter and rainbows. I'm happy. (laughs) I'm a little bubbly and, and like clever and quippy. Like I'm not sarcastic and sharp. And I would get very, I would apologize to people and I'd be like, I know you're expecting Theo, but like, that's just not where I'm at in my life anymore. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm so grateful for about my fans is that they allowed those two things to be different. Yeah. They allowed me to play Viola without needing me to be a psychotic murderer. (laughs) They can read the room. Like, I mean, that's, that's the, the thing is they, they can tell a difference between, you know, uh, a fictional character and in, in you as, as an actor and which you'd think that that would just be, should be default and it should be default. But for a lot of fan bases, it absolutely is not. When fan bases try to claim ownership over an actor or over a property, that's when things get real toxic real fast. But you know, they're, you know, I've noticed this with you. I've noticed this with Mike, like that's just not the people who enjoy you know, the work that you've done individually, the work you've done together, that that's just not where their headspace goes. And so maybe that's a testament to uh, the stuff you're putting out into the world. I, I don't know. Mm. Maybe it's maybe you're just getting lucky. You won the fan lottery. I have no idea what the answer is. There. It's the same thing with Brian Fuller's fans are the same way. We hear from oh, those guys oh, a lot, yeah. you know, mm. and they're they're so supportive and nice. And it's just positive vibes all the way around. And before we get back to Secret Window, because I want to I want to yes. get back there quickly. I do want to give a shout out to one of your fans in particular, and also one of our fans who's been very supportive of the show. Uh, her name is Kells. Kells! Uh, I don't know if she wants. That's I don't know if she wants about. the. Uh, yeah. yeah. I. Oh, did she make your header? Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Oh, right on. Okay, doesn't I, surprise I me. That's who I thought in my mind when you said that. I'm like, yeah, it sounds like something she'd do. Yeah. I, well, I don't want to. I don't want to put her on blast by you know reading off her Twitter at on the air. Uh, she may not want that attention, but um, mm-hmm. she's great. 
Thank you for listening, Kels, and uh, yep. for being a very passionate yet also normal fan. Normal, not- intelligent, mm-hmm. kind, good person. Yes. Be more like that, everyone. Yeah. Be more like Kels. <laughs> yep. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Um. So back to back to Secret Window, though. What else do we want to talk about? <laughs> I took window? some notes. Hold on. Um, okay. Let's see. While I was watching, eventually I threw my phone across the room so I couldn't take notes anymore because I rolled my eyes so hard. Wait, wait, wait. wait. What was the breaking point? I'm going to tell you. I, I do believe <laughs> the breaking point was when they had the fight where it didn't end in death when they made such a specific uh, argument. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, oh, also the talking heads moment. Jesus Christ. And he's sitting in his car and he's looking at his house and he goes, this is not my beautiful house. This is not your <laughs> Johnny Depp, where the fuck is the editor? Where the fuck is the director? To be like, that feels a little on the nose right now. So why don't you think that and not say it? I also had an argument that like many people are confronted with the problem of the internal monologue when adopting Stephen King. Mm. Adapting Stephen mm. King. Don't adopt Stephen King. He's an adult male. It's not a great environment. <laughs> but when it's- <laughs> There are many more need- need- <laughs> needful kids. Um, but yeah. you're confronted with the internal monologue issue. It is never the answer to just have the character talk to themselves out loud what was written down in the book. That's never the answer. That is the first and worst choice as the writer. You have got to find a better way. And this was mm-hmm. the beginning of my theory about everyone just agreeing with themselves that this movie was great because Johnny Depp does a fine job of talking to himself. He doesn't, fe- it doesn't feel weird. He's a great actor, but there's many other ways to do that. That's like having a writer look at a blank screen and then like scratch their head. You're like, that's not what writers do. <laughs> You're a writer, <laughs> sir. You know how writers who feel blocked do. And then I miss I do so a- much the insurance investigator being smart. Oh, watch yes. that female lawyer, <laughs> like basically t- uh-huh. hitting on Johnny Depp, being like, mm, I just went through a divorce too. Mm, it's so hard. What's going on, guys? I'm like, you're a fucking lawyer. Be a lawyer. Like, let her be a lawyer. Guys. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, 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 will, I will stand up a little bit for that scene because what I like about it is it is so atypical for that, that moment where you have this person who I, I – I, I didn't read it as so much as like, I want to fuck Johnny Depp, which I'm sure that that probably is what the intent was. And I'm reading way too much into it, but I read it as like, Oh, my fucking asshole of a husband just pulled the exact same shit with me. So fuck this girl. You know, I'm on your side now, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, that's actually kind of an interesting wrinkle to throw into a scene like this. But you're, you're again, it's just a surface level thing. You would have been so much better if you had the insurance investigator there essentially being the opposite argument on that side of the table. And then you, then you have this weird gray area where you have this guy who, you know, certain that the fire was started by the the guy sitting across from him. Uh, And then you have the, you know, the counterpart to that of going, well, you know, I don't really buy that because, you know, I just went through a divorce. My husband's a fucking asshole and she's being, you know, a a real asshole to him right now in this moment. And, and I feel for, for him, like, it's like this, there's a lot of seeds of really interesting turns that this movie could have taken. And also, that's an example of somebody who is enjoying the scene they are shooting and not thinking about the movie as a whole. Because if by adding that character, the only thing it does is make us kind of dislike Johnny Depp's character. 
for being like, hmm. why are you flirting with this lawyer? And why are you putting your wife in this ex-wife in this awkward position? And it makes us dislike more people. The only person in that scene to kind of like is this lawyer, maybe, who is going through something. But it's like a fun idea of a scene, but it's not actually adding anything to character development, right. storytelling, um, or overall movie watching enjoyment you kind right. of were like you guys really when shooting the scene were like oh that's a fun way to do it but nobody was a producer in the room going yeah no it's fun and everything and i love the way you quote the talking heads but it doesn't really <laughs> help the movie can i mention something that that uh, always gets under my skin um uh, about this movie in which got it's still one of the things that kind of makes me throw my hands up in the air is the whole idea of this magazine uh, having the short story in it, you know, that that is the the proof that he wrote it first. The, the whole movie feels like it's treading water about getting this fucking magazine <laughs> that it should be the easiest thing in the world to get. And like, I, I can understand the original story was published before the Internet was really a big thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, it existed in, in, in the in 1990, but it wasn't. Uh, a AOL online yet, right? It wasn't in, in everybody's homes. So finding something that was published 10 years before in a magazine isn't as easy as just going and if I don't have my copy, you know, I, I can just look it up on the internet, yeah. you know, um, and, and prove it. But this movie was made and set in, you know, 2004 when the literally all he had to do was to fucking take John Shooter into his his office, open his big laptop and say, you know, type in the name of the magazine and show him, you know, yeah. show him an eBay listing. You know, it's yeah. like there there could have been it, it, it feels like such treading water in because the, they were stuck in a. Uh, a place where they just couldn't explain that away with, without giving up the whole concept of this guy actually did write it. You know, Mort did write the the story before this guy claims to have written it, in which they just refused to give up and they just refused to adapt it in a way that would make any kind of sense. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I don't understand why they didn't just set the movie in a time before the Internet. I don't know what <laughs> setting it in 2006 gave us, like what what benefit except that it was easier on wardrobe production and it probably was a studio. Again, right. Yeah. They could, they could take a newer bathrobe to, to tear holes into. Oh my God. Yeah. Don't get me started on like, <laughs> Oh, the writer's in a sad bathrobe. He must be sad. <laughs> I just, come on guys, just try one other gear. One thing I want to, I want to th- throw this conversational door open is, mm. um, Kate, you've said many times on this episode that Johnny Depp is a a great actor. I have seen performances and films of his that I think are great. And, you know, uh, he is great in them. But over time, I have begun to wonder if he is not more a very interesting collection of ticks and quirks than he is a great actor. And that may have more to do with the projects that he's chosen over the last, say, 20 years than anything else. But where do y'all fall on that debate? Do you mm. think he's sort of coasting on those quirks now or like no question? Could could he does he have like have another Ed Wood in him for instance? Could he even do that? Sure. Now? Well, I mean, you, you could take this say the same thing about Bruce Willis, you know, it's like well, you know, I that, think that Bruce Willis kinda, is done, buddy. Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, when when he gives a shit, he he can still turn in a looper. You know what I mean? It's like 
uh, he, he was, was great the in last was it, one. Mo- mo- no, Moonrise Kingdom. He was really good in too, like as a bit part, and he had life in in his eyes. It's like it, it's all a choice. I think. I mean, maybe there might not be. There, there's going to be life, you know, around them that we don't un- understand, of course. But sure. uh, and especially in Johnny Depp's case now. But Bruce Willis seems when he's engaged and he cares, and he, when he's present and shows up, he's still one of the most captivating, like leading guys. Um, and I think that Johnny Depp had that. I mean, you watch his early stuff, of course, like what's he eating Gilbert Grape and Edward, uh, Edward Dead Man. Loathing, like I mentioned, Dead Man, uh, even the first Pirates of the Caribbean. I know that uh, Jack Sparrow's become his own like, you know, kind of cliche mean, at this point. But yeah. you watch that first movie and he brings so much life and presence and care and thought to the weirdness and the brilliance of that first pirates movie real quick. Uh, we're going off on a whole nother tangent here and I apologize, but um, is that he's playing Jack Sparrow with nuance. Like as much as he's like this cartoon character, that is the, the shield that that character has. He He's a, a he's a great pirate masquerading as a fuck up. And it's, a and, and he's character. using that. It's no oh, good. Sorry. Sorry. It's a fully developed character. When I say a great actor, that's what I mean. Like it's Jack Sparrow is not right a scenery flat where if you walked around the back, it's just cardboard. Like it, there's mm-hmm. nuance in a character that did not necessarily deserve it. Like he must've shown up. I don't, I, I think he is a great actor in the way that I think the man is a Mustang of like a car. The engine is huge. It's big, it's powerful. And it really needs a director. Like he needs a collaborator, right. which is what, right. What the art is really about. And, and when somebody doesn't know how to drive the car, it goes off the rails. Mm. But like when you, when you get Edward Scissorhands out of him, it's because Mm -hmm. he's got this relationship with his director who is able to take this tornado of quirks and ticks and talent and help it become a focused, sharp wind. Counterpoint though, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, same director. Yeah. But I think Johnny Depp got too big for Johnny Depp. I think he hated it and he felt uncomfortable and he thought he only could do this thing that everybody wanted and he forgot the indie. I don't know. Did you guys see pig yet? Yes. Yeah. It's great. I think there's a, a pig in Johnny Depp at some point. <laughs> That's a hell of a quote. <laughs> I think there's a pig in Johnny Depp at some point. That's like a black mirror episode. Good. Oh, oh, fuck. Amber Heard, we're looking in your direction. Um, How was it not me that made geez. that joke? That's incredible. I'm really impressed for that moment. Um, yeah, that was good. I agree. With, I agree with what you're saying, though. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. He, I, Nicholas Cage became like a caricature of himself for a while. And then he came back around and dropped all of it and showed us what was underneath there and pig. And I think the right script, the right director and the right timing, Johnny Depp could drop and, like that again. And him giving a shit. I mean, that because there's something when he, even when uh, in like his little appearance in Murder on the Orient Express, mm-hmm. where he's there to be the body, right? Mm-hmm. He's Mr. Body in, in Orient Express. Mm-hmm. There's just like a light that's out of his eyes. It like it, that was in his uh, his uh, Harry Potter spinoff stuff too. Like he just was, seemed bored to be there, and that's what I why I mentioned like Bruce Willis. It's like he. You know, maybe he's just distracted with all the fucking life shit going on and all the, yeah. you know, crazy shit going on in the real world. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe he's burnt out. Maybe he's just not inspired. I don't know what it is, but like, I do miss that this era Johnny Depp, because even though he's 
he's not great in secret window. He he's swinging, you know, for it. And like, even in Charlie and the chocolate factory, I think it's a huge whiff, but it's not a boring performance. You know, he's going for something that doesn't work at all. Uh, but you know, he's, there's a light in his eyes. I, I don't know of a better way to, to say it than, than that. It's just, he's, he's present and, mm-hmm. and there it's, it's like the recent stuff where it just feels like, you know, he's been beat up by life and could just wants to be anywhere else besides in front of the camera at that well, moment. To speak entirely, uh, that, really bummer. It's entirely out of my own like schoolhouse. It's from what I have read on the internet, which take with a grain of salt, the man is in the grips of addiction. Right. And yes. It's, it's terribly hard to be authentic and creative when you're suffering from addiction. And so I wonder like King and maybe it's on my mind because I, I got sober during midnight mass and have been sober for almost a year now. And, and King got sober. And I wonder what happens if Johnny ever makes that choice because it's it feels Hmm. like his life sort of fell apart on him and he really turned to substances and he's kind of caught in that trap right now. And you can't, Right. You, your your eyes can't light up with joy for the world or your work <laughs> right. if what's bringing you joy is booze and drugs. It just can't. Right. Totally. Why did you, uh, you if you don't mind me asking, why did you make the decision to get sober? Was it your kids? Sort of. I I was one of many, many people who used the first lockdown as an excuse to start drinking at 10 a.m. Yep. And I wasn't before <laughs> then. I was like, I guess you would have called me like a good time. Like I loved a party. I loved a thing like that, but my life was pretty manageable within my drinking. And then when the pandemic happened, my drinking became unmanageable and yep. I found myself in a situation that I didn't know how to get out of with moderation. And so I just said, mm. I think I'm going to stop. And then I just stopped and my pink cloud has lasted, which is what they call the joy you feel out of getting sober it's like all of a sudden mm. these things that I thought I suffered from deep anxieties and depressions and all of a sudden I was sleeping well and I wasn't as anxious and I was able to manage my life and and look things in the eye and I you know it was such so clearly the right choice for me I was like oh this is a lifetime choice for me because right I use drinking as a way to dull any of my feelings. And so I was not only cutting myself off from anxiety and depression and sadness and fear, I was truly cutting myself off from joy, excitement, stimulation, like anything good. And I'm, I'm just really grateful for my sober support group that has helped me get through it. Well, drinking during quarantine, you know, for me it was, and I just, I just recently stopped drinking Mm -hmm. in a few days. It'll be about, it'll be two weeks. Wow. So I'm yeah. like on that same pink cloud that you talked about, mm-hmm. like where within a few days it was like, oh, holy shit, I feel so much better. Yeah. You know, um, I'm, I'm more engaged. I'm more upbeat. But during quarantine, it's been like a matter of it's the same day every motherfucking day. And, you know, here's a way to pass the time quicker. Yep. It seems to be more fun. You know, it's it's a very, very, very easy trap to fall into. I've always been a social drinker, but this was, you know, what I went through during quarantine was insane. insane. And, and, wh- and while we've been doing this show, it's, it's just like, it got real bad. 
It got real bad on my end. And I, I feel like I've got a handle on it now. But I, I'm sort of in agreement with you where I, I don't know that I, I can moderate it. I'm not I'm not so f- foolhardy to say like, well, I'll never have a drink again. You know, I've made that mistake before and, and yeah. eaten my words. But I think, you know, the game now is just like, how long can you go and maintain it? Yeah. You know? And meanwhile, I'll just stick to my little weed. I like I, I like weed, and that that doesn't that doesn't fuck up my entire world like like drinking does. Yeah, so. I'll tell you, like I approaching ten months now, I still find myself sometimes being a day at a time person. Now I didn't yeah. do the steps. I'm not in AA, but the other day it was a beautiful day in Vancouver, and I was on my bike, and the craving hit hard. It was like, oh man, a beer mm. would be so good right now. And mm-hmm. the only thing that got me through that moment was being like, okay, you can have a beer tomorrow if you still feel the same way. And then I didn't feel the mm. same way tomorrow. And wow, yeah, I've tried that before and thing. it doesn't work for me because I'll have that fucking beer the next day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if I get to thinking about it, like once I get an idea in my head, I'm like a, the kind of person like, well, I'm just going to execute that idea sooner or later. So if I make that deal with myself, I'm taking that deal. Yeah, but like, you know, it's, I just have the time to think about the cost of that beer. That cost of that beer yeah, exactly. is the promise I made to myself, the promise I made to the world I'm doing. It gives up the life I have been experiencing for the last 10 months. And not, mm-hmm. not that day, right? I'm not the type of drinker who I'm going to have the one beer at 33 acres and then end up smoking meth under an overpass that night. Like <laughs> I probably will have half of that beer and go home. But that does mean that six months from now, I'm going to be drinking again. And I don't want, ever right. want to exactly. go back there. I don't. I really don't. I didn't like it as much as I thought I did. And the lies I told myself and the lies I told other people about me it went in my alcoholism. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just sucks. It was my secret window, my secret garden. Yeah. <laughs> my addiction is corn, but only <laughs> it was fertilized like by the, the decaying remains of my ex. Yeah. <laughs> fucking hell obvious window thinly veiled secret <laughs> drinking problem because right, at the end like everyone knows he killed them that's the that's the argument we all know it so it's not a secret anything well you would think that i mean again that just doesn't make any fucking sense because if they're so sure that he did it how how is he not the obvious thing of like, well, maybe we should check this brand new garden that has brand new corn growing, you know, (laughs) growing out there. It's like, if that cop is so sure that, that he, he did it, that he's going, he pays him a visit to tell him to go shop at another town because he makes people uncomfortable. I just don't, it doesn't make any sense. It it doesn't track. He's making people uncomfortable in the grocery store with his close standing and mouth breathing. (laughs) And his his pride in his new braces. And blowout. <laughs> Who's blowing his hair out? <laughs> Giving it that cute little flip underneath. Oh. Uh, I, I do I, I did it laugh like pretty riotously whenever he walked into that store and he, and it was the first time in the movie where his hair was combed. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my God, that is so he's found himself. He's he's happy now. Um, in the, in the book, he is, uh, he doesn't kill his, his wife and, no. and her lover. Like they survive and, uh, right. and he dies, which is such a better, ending, yeah. but again, studio note, you can't kill your main character. Uh, before <sighs> we wrap this up, I would like to bring up something that we've, uh, we've touched on on the show before. And that's Stephen King's weird thing with corn. Um, <laughs> this was, 
this was something that we only really picked. I only really picked up on once we started doing this show. And, you know, suddenly my all all the reading I was doing and all the watching I was doing is about Stephen King shit, you know? So you start recognizing patterns that may not have been as clear before. And this thing with the corn, I'm telling you, like, if we ever get him on the show, I'm going to ask him about this. There seems to be something totemic about corn to Stephen King. It pops up over and over and over again. It pops up here. About the stand. In the stand, in Sleepwalkers, Children of the Corn. And then, you know, I'm having this thought again as I revisited this this movie. And then then just a couple of days ago, he fucking posted a picture of himself, like presumably on his own property, growing corn. Oh my god! Like, you got to ask shit. him. You must ask him someday if you ever meet him or talk to him. What's the deal <laughs> with corn? <gasps> I'm a hundred percent gonna ask him. Right, you know I will ask him. <laughs> spiders and sexualizing young children. Those are my three. Questions. <laughs> I might leave that one alone. I mean, um, <laughs> take that bullet for me if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna avoid that. Uh, the corn one seems like a more friendly question. It does <laughs> less, like it less makes insidious. More sense why Mike refuses to let me have dinner with Stephen King when I say things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, tell me, why do you have a whole bunch of horny kids in your? Yeah, stories? what's the deal with all the like child rape and like the people yeah. with guns in their butts? What's that about too? I have questions about guns in their butts. A lot of yeah, that's run up the butt in Stephen King. The stand, mm-hmm. right? That's in the extended stand. That's the kid, right? Yeah, the kid. Does the gun oh, up yeah, the butt? The kid. Like- Maybe Roland. It, it, <laughs> that's the gun up the cooch. Oh, the uh, yeah, the gun barrel abortion. Yeah, there's just a yeah. lot of people putting. Uh, there's a lot of phallic imagery with guns in King stuff. So spider. Yeah. Well, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. You know, yeah, all man and things. <laughs> So yeah, no, I'm but, not and, allowed to have dinner. And with the king, I get it, I get it. And with the and with the you know the horny kids thing or the child sexuality thing, I think that mm. it's all clunky. I think I, I think I understand what he's going for in those situations, but I also think he's just you know this is symptomatic of his sex scenes in general. His he's sex scenes are usually very clunky, you know, and so. It seems like anytime he veers into that territory, be it adults or children, that it gets it gets a little wonky and uncomfortable and it's just doubly uncomfortable for obvious reasons yeah. when you know children are involved and you can also you see it is, right it's an iconic moment between childhood and adulthood this has been litigated yeah, that's been his answer for like the mm-hmm. the it you know uh sex scene is he's just like well you know the whole point is that this is them transitioning into adulthood this is them going from kids right, to adults right. it's a coming of age and it was written- uh now now you have to separate the horror kids being horny with each other and obviously the rape that happens that is uh two two different kinds of sexuality totally um but that just might be like a uh kind of a I don't want to say easy or lazy, but it's it's a shortcut to like, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen outside of death. Yeah. You know, he kills a lot of kids too. So maybe sometimes he just goes, well, maybe this one will just be in the library policeman, right. you know, yeah. as we mentioned before. Kills no. a lot of pets too. Love he does. Pet this but, but, but like, but like what you were just saying, I think the, my wife always, you know, points this out when we're watching Stephen King stuff. She's like, ah, and you killed the fucking dog again. I'm like, it's, it's shorthand. For, right. you know, it's I don't like it either. I, I'm really not chill with like animal cruelty, even if it's vague or you don't like it's it's not graphic. I don't like it. You know, I can I can watch any movie where there's people getting mowed down with machine guns or machetes all day and not blink an eye. But like the second someone kicks a dog, I'm like, I'm turning this off. 
You know, like I, I hate that shit. Um, but I also think it's shorthand, particularly in the horror genre. You're going to have to have some victims in there without taking out your characters. And it's it's expressing that evil without, you know, robbing yourself of a character that you spent however many pages building up to that point. But again, the corn thing I find truly like baffling and very interesting. I'm, I, I feel like there must be a story there. You know, it's not an accident. If he was doing this shit all the time with apples or grapefruits, it would be equally as weird, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So there, I, I wonder if, I don't know. I wonder if there's something from his childhood or... You know, we should go back to On Writing because he talks about being in the shed with the spiders in On Writing and mm-hmm. it cleared out a lot of like his spider thing. And I wonder if there isn't a similar story in there about corner or maybe like... <laughs> he, he got lost in a cornfield. Like America... Like there was something there because it does, it tends to echo, you know, feelings of maybe not in Fourth of July barbecues, (laughs) and it stands for that Middle America thing where like fields of corn, beautiful gold. (laughs) You you know, you know what I I bet the answer to this is is that like. Tabitha just makes an, a mean corn dish for dinner sometimes, and <laughs> he fucking eats that, and then like goes back to writing and goes, you know what? This is time for some corn. I have corn on my, my mind. Answer our questions. Tweet us. <laughs> Let us know. I'm going to get corn thing is about. I'm going to get this out of him. Yeah. One day. Watch. <laughs> Man, I love this idea. I love this. <laughs> Oh, That'll be the ultimate thesis of this uh, this whole podcast experiment that <laughs> yeah. we've done. Like, <laughs> it's so just what have you learned, Stephen King? To answer, uh, what have you learned watching corn. all my movies and reading all my books? And we're going to say we learned you're fucking obsessed with corn, dude. We need to talk about this and work uh, this out because also, you know, you, the answer to life is corn. And he goes correct and unlocks the uh, <laughs> Ready Player One style <laughs> 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 treasure trove. We won the chocolate factory, <laughs> but I and it's just filled with corn his, on the cob. His experience in the bathroom if he eats that much corn okay now that's inappropriate you're Kate. inappropriate it's the real question does he actually <laughs> ask himself when was the last year i ate corn and he's like oh wait every day this makes sense i would like where to do you think the shit weasels came from we should point out that it is specifically corn on the cob it's not like no it has to you be never get some, yeah you it's never not get some cream corn, corn action from the king no 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 you're getting it straight on the cob baby like and there's a lot of that there's some, I'm telling you, there's something wait, going wait, on there. Guys, I'm get to the I hate of to it. be the obvious person here or like also have the middle school brain, but there is a phallic aspect to corn on the cob too. Oh, yeah. everything is dicks with you. I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> you have no idea how often my husband says that to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's constantly complaining about it. He's texting me all the time. It's, it's, it's talking about dicks again. In the middle of the night to tell me he's done his greatest work and why is everything dicks with you? <laughs> <laughs> Honey, I think I made my greatest project. And you're like, no, dicks? What? What? <laughs> so I haven't told the story of the dicks yet. Uh, oh, we've really got which to would, feel I mean, if it's, a, if, it's a phallic, <laughs> if it's a phallic thing, that brings a whole new angle to Children of the Corn. And now we're back into that, <laughs> into that troubling what territory. Is I'm not allowed to have dinner with Stephen King. <laughs> We're going to an all corn on the corn and you can't keep your mouth shut. Can't. I can't. He's like so main and appropriate. And I am so like East Coast Jewish and inappropriate. Like it just will (laughs) never work. No, you you get along with him. We'll find out. He's very down to earth, that guy. (laughs) 
you know. I mean, he gets along we, with we, Mike, so maybe that's why I think I Eric and I have Tabitha. Eric and I have both met him and and found him to be very you know salt of the earth type and like you know just just a chill guy. But will he talk about? I don't him? think I I don't think he likes getting his ass kissed, and I don't think he likes um I don't think he likes the deep nerd sort of. You know, I'm imagining the the William Shatner on Saturday Night Live sketch where it's like, get a life, mm. would you people like I, 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 I think he doesn't like those ultra nerdy questions. So, of course, I'm going to ask him a couple of those if I ever get a chance. <laughs> yep. Um, But, you know, I, I, I think he would get along. He's got a, He's got a mischievous sense of humor. He's got a dirty sense of humor, oh, I bet. Yeah. You know, he's got a filthy mouth. You, you, you've read his books. As long as you don't go out to eat with him at a corn on the cob restaurant, I think you're safe. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's the first place I take him. I serve him like we're going to Corny crab. Larry's. Yeah, Corny Larry's. I serve him spider crabs <laughs> with a side of corn on the cob, yep. and I'm like, "Let's talk, King." <laughs> Confess. I have a gun in my hand. <laughs> okay, I'm now, child. In now, the other now. hand, I mean, not that I'm threatening. <laughs> oh God, save us all! But and the gun is, of course, a phallic symbol. It is. It's a penis gun from a bachelorette party. <laughs> <laughs> Some out of a Cronenberg movie. <laughs> a scene that needs to be written. Mike Flanagan, if you're listening, write it. Write it for me. Yes, please. Stephen King's Naked Lunch. <laughs> well, I think on. I think we can probably I, wrap probably Secret Window on. I'm getting on that note from my publicist right now. Going, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just wait until we get to um, no smoking and, you know, <laughs> you say really inflammatory things about Bollywood music numbers. And I will. This is the truth, though. I will only do no smoking as a joint episode with Rahul Kohli. Dude. Oh, I wanted to talk to you about this. OK, Rahul, mm-hmm. we we talked to him about being on the show and he was he was like, yeah, I'll do that. But then it was like, well, how much Stephen King have you read? And he was just like, ah, not much. We're like, well, could you read a Stephen King book? And uh you know, Never maybe listen to, to your text again. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. He, he was, he was kind of like, yeah, I'll think he, he didn't seem particularly motivated. I'll say that, right. you know, it seemed like he'd be happy to do it if he had the knowledge right there. We, we experienced that a lot with people that we asked to be on the show. Like they're they're They don't feel that they're experts and they feel obligated to be experts to be on the show, which is abs. It's absolutely not a prerequisite to being on this show it's kind of me and eric's job to be the experts yeah we come into this and we go down rabbit holes and people who are listening are like checking their phones because they're like oh snooze fest again no we hear all the time people people fucking love the tangents on this show that's what so because that's what i'm here we were we were very concerned early on that you know did we go too far off track on this one but you know that's where the gold is if this show were academic it wouldn't be any goddamn fun that's so drag him on here Kicking and screaming. If I, you have I, I don't care if he's read any king. No smoking and Quitters Inc. is the perfect combination for him. And I'll, yeah, he only has to read a short story, short and, story and he'll watch a Bollywood movie, which he makes tons of jokes about on Twitter anyway. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll try to do that. I, I'm calling you out. He is funny as fuck. <laughs> he, I follow him on Twitter. He is funny as fuck on there. He's um, funny as fuck so in I, real life. He is hold your stomach, tears streaming down your face funny. I just want to talk to the guy, basically. Aww. So, yeah, uh, we will absolutely <laughs> green light that idea uh, right now. And speaking of Rahul, he is also in Midnight Mass, correct? Uh, he is at, in Midnight Mass, and he is exceptional in Midnight Mass. Can you tell us anything about his character? He plays Sheriff Hassan. He's a sheriff. Hmm. Small island. <laughs> 
compelling and rich. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do, does this sheriff care if uh, one of the townspeople's pets has a screwdriver in their neck? I think all sheriffs care a lot about a lot of things. <laughs> does he carry around corn on the cob in his dick holsters? No. That's something I can answer for certain. He has no dick holsters. <laughs> um, and there is no corn on Put it on a t-shirt. Oh, my God. I'm really giving the poll quotes today. <laughs> yeah. Good, good luck finding the, uh, the, 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 the one-minute-long uh, poll quote for this, <laughs> for this episode, Eric. <laughs> yeah. Pals, we're looking um, for it. Could you just put together a quick edit of the best of quotes? oh that'll be coming in hot oh for sure um tell the people when midnight mass is hitting netflix um and all that will be premiering on netflix september 24th of right on like in two weeks from when we're recording this maybe a little bit more uh the trailer it is friday september 3rd right now the trailer is coming out september 9th and it's beautiful please look for it yeah, I believe oh. that'll be dropping the day after this episode airs. Oh, perfect. You have another project that you've, do, yeah. you've done that's coming out by the end of the year, right? Yeah, I did a Netflix thriller called Hypnotic, which is one of those right. like PG-13 psychosexual thriller- thrillers in the vein of Kiss the Girls or Sleeping with the Enemy. Hmm. I've loved those movies my Dig whole it. life, and I'm super grateful to... Matthew Angel and Suzanne Cote, who did the directing, who allowed me to romp in a particular way I've never gotten to before. Romping, huh? Oh, it's a romp. Uh, 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 I can't watch <laughs> Is it based on the popular liquor? Definitely, yes. Yes, that's what I assumed. No, that yes, safe to it's based on the popular liquor in the sense that it is never mentioned, referenced, or thought of while we were making the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and spelled differently. And There's no Q in there. But you know, my performance as a newly sober person was entirely influenced by liquor. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, joining us once again. And uh, we will, of course, have you back on, hopefully with uh, Rahul uh, joining you. All right. Well, thanks for being right. here, Kate. This was great. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Kate Siegel for joining us yet again. Almost, she's undefeated. She's an undefeated King Cast champion, totally at this point. The first four timer, correct? We don't have any other four timers besides us. Yes. Well, besides us, yes. <laughs> we don't I, count. I, We've I think, done the show at least four times. I know that much for sure. Yeah, f- uh, four to six. I'm going to guess. <laughs> um, and I think Brian Fuller will probably be the next one to join the the uh, the four timers club. But uh, right. rarefied air. Certainly, and deserving of on- only of guests such as Kate and Brian. Although I guess right. M- Flanagan's also up there too, huh? Yeah, he's been on three times. I guess. it's three, yeah. including Skeleton. Yeah, it's crew. three. Right. It's three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, he and he and Kate were tied, and now Kate has uh, once again one upped him. So balls <laughs> in your court, Flanagan. <laughs> Owned. But yes, thanks to thanks to Kate for being here. She is always a delight, and that was a, a most spirited episode of the show you know yep. we knew that one was going to be a little wacky and uh hopefully when she comes back she'll bring rahul with her and we'll uh we'll get to do no smoking after all and i really i really want to check that one out yeah if we can make it work by god we'll do it but in the meantime what do we have coming up next week eric Ooh, next week we are diving into one of my favorite king stories uh the mist we are revisiting the mist 
Mm-hmm. That is that is what is on Doc. Um, our guest is an emerging horror director, and he has a movie coming out very soon. And he's a huge, huge, huge fan of the Darabont adaptation, and so he is uh, he is going to come in and. I assume if he's a fan, he's going to lavish some praise on on uh, that dark, dark, dark ass movie. Yes. And uh, we look forward to talking to him. And it's it's been a while since we talked about The Mist on the show. Yeah. I guess the last time would be when Brian came on and had his. Well, he was he was beaten by the buzzer on several occasions during that. <laughs> yep. So he he only got a, a, a couple minutes worth of commentary in there. But uh, yeah, this will be a full blown Z's episode. And. You know, hopefully we can get Brian back to uh, finish what he was going to say about the mist at some point. So that'll probably be the next appearance of that title on the show. And uh, over on our Patreon, uh, we have an episode that functions basically the same way that a main feed episode would. It's just about a very specific and limited King thing. Uh, We're going to be talking about the road virus heads north, both the short story and the 45 minute long adaptation they did of that story for TNT's Nightmares and Dreamscape series. And to do that, we are being joined by a guest by the name of Brianna Ziegler. Uh, some of you know from her work in Paste Magazine and Thrillist and Little White Lies, Polygon. She's a she's a film commentator and has a particular love for that short story, which I was surprised by. So Road Virus heads north, people. Uh, this Friday is for you on the KingCast Patreon. Get excited about yeah, that. A yeah, lot of lot of talk about garage sales in that episode. <laughs> I would like to yeah, say. Yeah, there's there's a yeah thrift store talk, flea market talk. There's a lot of weird, random alleyways we go down on that one, which uh, you know makes those even more entertaining. I think. And uh, you can hear that if you sign up for the Patreon between now and Friday. That's patreon.com backslash the KingCast. Those of you who are already subscribed, thank you. Uh, just stay where you're at and your your episode will arrive first thing Friday, as always. And uh, while I'm on that note, please remember to go to iTunes, rate us, subscribe, give us those five star reviews. We love those. This is just my once every three episode call to to do that. <laughs> Apparently, that's really good for your podcast if people go and do that. So if, uh, you know, just a you know, a very small fraction of you took the time to do that. Uh, it would be really advantageous for us and for the show. So please do. If Kate Siegel can come on the show four times. You can spend like 30 seconds to just go five stars. The show is good. That is it. That's all you need to do. I did the thing you're not supposed to do. And I, I saw one of the one star reviews the other day. Oh, no. And uh, it, it it said, who are these pretentious prigs? I have never Freaks. in my life been called either of those words. I was kind of excited about that one. That was such like a pretentious that, uh, that I w- yeah, pretentious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did this person listen the to the that things episode? Dick holsters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I imagine that was somebody who heard us say something on one of the episodes that they found. Well, pretentious. But I, I can't imagine yeah. what that would be since we're we're so low key. Does a pretentious show have this? Does no, it, it have doesn't. does it have dick holsters? I submit to it you does that not it does have not. Dick Pretentious show doesn't have Chuck Buggins, ladies and gentlemen. Pretentious show is uh, academic. Yeah. Matter I of fact, we could probably stand to be a little bit more pretentious, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that person was wrong. So counteract that person. Give us some five star reviews and just say the most unpretentious show you've ever heard. 
<laughs> yes, we need 7,000 of those immediately. So uh, <laughs> please get on that, listeners. Is there anything else we want to we wanna tease? Anything that's in the works? Only thing we'll say is that uh, you should just keep your eyes open on, on our Twitter handle. It's uh, KingCast19, at KingCast19. We might have some really interesting wearable uh, KingCast things to be looking at in the very near future. So Yeah, some of you are all going to be extremely excited about what's going on with that. And also, this airs on Wednesday, which means when you're hearing this, if you're hearing this on the Wednesday, it airs, which would be the 8th. Keep your eyes peeled on the KingCast Twitter feed because there may be an announcement there about maybe something else we're doing very soon. For sure. That should do it, though. I think we're ready to log off. All righty. Fine. Well, everyone else, have a great week. Uh, Patreons will... Patrons. Patron Patreons. We will see you on Friday. Bye. Adios. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Andley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. (laughs) 